This week's show is brought to you by Horizon Books in Capitol Hill, serving Seattle book lovers for 47 years with one of the largest and finest used book collections in the city. Mention UpZones at the register this week for a 10% discount. Come down to the shop on Friday, February 2nd for the latest installment of D&D with Strangers, an opportunity for a diverse community to interact in a fantasy setting, hosted by Chris Packer. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is UpZones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. I don't think we've gotten to connect in a couple minutes here. Yeah, it's, it has been a little bit. Are you um, now officially Seattle's real estate mogul? Or <laughs> is, there, is there another let's, step? Wait, I think I actually get that title next year, but let's oh, hold off year. a little bit. <laughs> okay. So, hey, you know, thank you for coming on. I've been mm-hmm. trying to get good folks like yourself, and, and it's good to let everybody know kind of what you're up to. Tell me a little bit mm-hmm. about Civic Minute. Yeah, sure. To hear what you're doing. Yeah, totally. So the Civic Minute in a nutshell is my real estate marketing newsletter, but it's a different kind of real estate marketing newsletter. I worked for Mayor McGinn for four years doing outreach and engagement in his office. And over the course of that four years, I put together this kind of, and I call it my panopticon for local news. Mm-hmm. It just allowed me to see everything that was happening in the city that was being written about online. You develop opinions about certain journalists, like maybe oh, they, they come yeah. at it with different angles. Definitely. And, and you get a very good sense. For, it's like you know, being a food critic and kind of like really getting to taste the flavors in a dish. You, know? yeah. you really get a, kind of a sense for where is someone coming from, what are the issues they care about, you know, what's the overall kind of like level of skills a journalist. There's a very deep kind of matrix you in which you experience these things. Don't need to name any names, but yeah. I'm curious. What's oh, I'm not going to name any names at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> no, wh- what's, the, what's the kind of most interesting hang-up you came across in terms of when you were in the uh, mm-hmm. mayor's office, it, just in terms of a journalist who wrote things a certain way or who came at things a certain way that you could never quite get your head around? Well, and I think that the... So if you look at the overall kind of like that what's out there, right? They exist on a, along a spectrum of hierarchy and organization. Mm-hmm. And on one end, you've got the kind of like, you know, the stranger has this very kind of anarchic structure in a lot of very, ways. Very radical, uh, right. social justice oriented. Not only that, but they also allow, and you know, I, I don't know how this has changed in recent years or what the current setup is editorially, but to a certain extent, they allow a very wide degree of conflicting opinions. They have dissent endorsements, their, which uh, you know I hate. Right. <laughs> like there's, and I know there's a, if you talk to folks who have stranger in the past, there's also kind of a subcurrent there about the things that are acceptable within this kind of like percept, perceived wide open free reign kind of, mm. you know, oh, whatever you want to put it. And, but there's still some kind of red lines you don't cross with regard to the editors. So it's there even at The Stranger, but if you compare that to The Seattle Times, you know, The Seattle Times has a much more kind of unified editorial bent that they're coming from. Okay. And if you look at like even the, so the headlines are very important in online articles because that's as far as a lot of people ever get. And the just the way in which a story will be framed and the times is a good example because the times has a functioning newsroom all the way up and down they have certain like their editorial staff is and their editorial side is very conservative uh oh their, yeah their very anti-density which as you know well, is a, big I mean, yeah, issue to me. a lot of things like they're they're just, they're just much more conservative on a lot of issues than a lot of seattleites and they're a regional paper too so i mean they're kind of a king county newspaper more than a seattle newspaper but their journalists, who are excellent, 
still have to fit within the context of this and the work is edited down sometimes the headlines are very misleading so yeah that's i think as far as you know the the outlets that were like the Seattle Times is the grand prize when you're trying to get anyone to write about anything because mm-hmm. no other outlet comes anywhere close in terms of online or offline reach. Just coverage. Yeah. Just coverage. If yeah. you get something in the front page of the Seattle Times, everyone who matters in Seattle is going to see that. Gotcha. That's winning. Gotcha. So I think the frustrating thing about the kind of piece that comes with that power is that none of that comes for free, right? Uh, if you're, you're talking to the stranger or GeekWire or CrossCut of these guys, it's, you're having a much more one-on-one conversation with a journalist who can spin that story in their own way based on their own life experiences in a different way than, they, than a journalist at the Times can. Put you on their podcast, for example. Put you on the podcast, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> Spin it however the hell I want. <laughs> totally. Well, I, like You would be on the very far, like if you think about yourself on that journalism spectrum, you'd be all the way on this kind of side of whatever, like, whatever you want to do, you can do. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And at the Times, you've got a much broader reach, but it also comes with these additional constraints on how journalists can tell stories, what pieces get edited out, how the kind of like top level piece gets framed. So I think that's one of the big differences. And it was one of the challenging things with McGinn was that, you know, editorially, the Seattle Times hated like McGinn. And that came across in coverage in a lot of different ways. Interesting. Um, so now bringing that back to where you are with Civic Minute, mm-hmm. right? What's the cocktail? Right there, there's a cocktail. I, I read your your uh, newsletter every week. Yep. And and if you're, if what you're telling me is that this is kind of developed over four years working with Mayor McGinn, mm-hmm. and and you're in his office, and you're in a community kind of an outreach role, exactly. right? Yeah. Outreach, some communications. Communications, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you're in that. This is the news. This is how it's being covered. This is mm-hmm. how it impacts us. This is how that impact impacts the city, mm-hmm. right? So so what's the cocktail there for? Now what you put in front of your uh, readers. Yeah, well, it's fairly simple. I mean, the Civic Minute came to me, the idea for it, because I kind of abstractly was interested in the idea of writing an aggregated news email when I worked mm-hmm. from again. I, you know, this, this was the time when, like, the week's 10 things you need to know today was going, and, like, the skim started in this time period. Fox Sentences, I think, wasn't quite out yet. But it was kind of like a heyday for a media redefined was one of the big ones that I read. You know, there are a lot of these things out there where people were using email as an aggregation tool to help cut down on the digital clutter of people's lives. That's right. They can click one thing. Exactly. You you know, and Twitter is kind of the same concept, right? At Twitter, it's best is smart people who agree with you going out and like finding things and curating them and pulling them in so you can see what's going on without having to go out there and do it yourself. So that idea was really appealing to me because I was reading a bunch of stuff, but you know, my filter was, does this impact the mayor's office? Do we need to know about, do the 30 people I work with need to know about this? That was my filter. So I was seeing everything, but it was kind of like seeing the news with a certain set of blinders on almost. Uh, and so after I finished the mayor's office, I really, like, I just wanted to disconnect and unplug from all that and just turn off the panopticon. And what I realized is that there was no substitute for it. There was nothing that existed at the local level for me to be able to unplug and only pay attention to this one thing. You know, you've got the Seattle Times daily email and the Crosscut daily email and like everyone's pushing their own stories, but nobody was pulling everything in together. Right. With a relative trustworthy, I mean, <clears throat> at the end of the day, you, you've got your partisan biases, I'm right. sure. I, yeah. I mean, I know you do and I do. Um, but at the end of the day, you're sort of a trusted advisor, right? You, you're, And this is something you said to me offline before. You really were just trying to remind everyone you're a real estate agent. 
right well, at the end of the day. The, that's the reason that, like, that was what allowed me to put the time, like, to justify putting 15 hours a week into it at the mm-hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I started in real estate, I realized that I needed some way to remind people that I exist. Like, that's basically, if you, ha- if you know a bunch of people, the most critical thing as a real estate agent is, well, if you know a bunch of people who trust you enough to want to use you as a real estate agent, you still have to remind them that you exist. There are different ways to do that, but most of them are terrible. Yeah. And most real estate marketing newsletters are, they actually make me not want to work without whoever's sending them to me because they're so lazy, they don't add anything to my life. It's clear there's like this automated drip campaign. And if you don't care enough about me to give me something meaningful when we interact, why would I ever possibly trust you with my time? Yeah, that's so what I think about it. That's really interesting, Sol, because you know I could sell a widget Mm-hmm. And I could call all my friends, especially the ones who maybe are good friends and like mm-hmm. me. They'd buy my widget. Right, just because of you. But they're not going to buy a house from me. Exactly. It's a very different environment. And so I'd love to hear more about what you think is the, the, the kind of the trust factor there. Well, it's not building trust at all. So like no one who didn't already know me before they got the Civic Minute has ever bought a house with me. The Civic Minute doesn't build trust. The Civic Minute reminds people of the trust they already have in me. Whoa, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So like from a business perspective, maybe 2% of people who get Pacific Minute will ever use me as a real estate agent. Correct. And if that happens, I'll be one of the highest, most successful real estate agents in the city if 2% of Seattle Pacific Minute readers ever buy a house from me. So then let's talk about trust. Mm-hmm. You have uh, a very interesting resume. Mm-hmm. You've been a car salesman. Absolutely. You have, uh, well, why don't you take me through a couple of the interesting <laughs> things you've done because I know yeah. When you tell stories around uh, around a campfire, they're usually pretty funny. <laughs> I, I've lived a very you know campfire-worthy life, I have to say. My first job after college was selling cars. So I graduated from college. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I've been in Texas my entire life. I grew up in Fort Worth, went to college in Houston. Parents still together? Uh, well, my mom died 10 years ago. Oh, but I'm they sorry were, to hear that. Until she died, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I was ready for a change. And I'd spent the first semester of my senior year of college doing a study abroad program where I traveled around what, I think seven or eight different countries in Asia, 21 different cities over the course of three and a half months. And it just opened my eyes to how much the world I still have left to see and how young I was and like just the, this idea of waiting until I was 65 to go travel and see the world right. just seemed ludicrous to me. Why retire when you can pre-tire? Exactly. I decided to treat my 20s as my retirement and then settle down when I turned 30 essentially. So that became my kind of orientation. And the first piece was, all right, I got to get out of Texas. You know, I lived here my entire life. Where do I want to go? I had this idea of just starting over totally from scratch, somewhere I didn't know anybody, and just seeing if I could make it on my own. Because I just lived my entire life in this kind of context of, okay, well, you know, if I really need it, I've got my parents for support, I've got my friends for support, or whatever. I was just ready to be out on my own. So I came up to Seattle, found a job selling cars down by SeaTac, because I needed a job that I could pay off all my student loans and credit cards with, save up a bunch of money, and then quit, and not have anybody miss me. And that was car sales. I already knew I was good at selling stuff. Uh, yeah, I sold Cutco knives when I was in college, which <laughs> gotcha. was the best job I've ever had up until, you know, probably real estate. People make money doing that. Oh, good money. I mean, as a, for me as a college student, I was making like 600 bucks a week, which was insane. I, mean, I was like, wow, I can't believe how much money this is. the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, it was 2000. Yeah. Well, 1999 probably. Wow, good God. That, for a college student, for me, it was like, I, yeah. it was great money, you know, yeah. and I enjoyed it. I got to go in and sit down with people in their homes and like, it was good. Yeah. yeah, I was good at it too. So that's interesting. So you said you don't build trust, but to me that sounds well, like... Well, the Civic Minute doesn't build trust. I see. My interactions see. with people over the course of my life build trust. Let's talk about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, so you know, you're, you're, you're selling people uh, knives, you're yep. selling people cars, uh, you're selling people houses. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, now that I think about it, you know, I've known you for 
what, four or five years now. Something like that. But, but looking at the totality of what you've done mm -hmm. to bring you to this moment, you, you're a salesman. That is what I do. Yeah. Like when I was so after the mayor's office, I sat down, actually it was in the, somewhere in the last year of the mayor's office. I remember I was out on a, a backpacking trip with a, a couple of friends to Shai Shai Beach. And we were just like spent eight hours in, trapped in this little kind of like, you know, spot where the tide was coming in. We kind of just hung out and like stayed in this little cove. And I remember we were hiking out of this little cove. And one of my friends asked me, like, what are you really passionate about in life? And it was this moment where I just wasn't, you know, trying to like put anything on there, trying to think of what the right answer was. And it was like, sales. That is what I'm passionate about, selling things. And Why? Because sales to me at its best is about... It's mediation. It's helping two sides that are in conflict reach a happy medium. That's fundamentally what sales is. And real estate is very at a very different kind of sales than car sales, right? Like it's car, with car sales, people always think, oh, car salesmen, there's a bunch of crooks that are just out to get you. I mean, that's one way to do car sales. You know, you can do it that way. But the way I thought about car sales was I don't care how much I sell this car for. You know, I want to sell a car so I can get on and sell the next car. And in order to sell this car, I've got uh, this customer has to trust me enough to want to work with me. My manager has to get something of value out of it, and they have to get something of value out of it. The manager wants to get as much money as they can for the car. The customer wants to get it for the lowest price they can. I need to find a way to help them find something they both are happy with. Because mm -hmm. in car sales, you don't win unless both sides win. So that's an interesting point. Let me take this in a complete left sure. turn. But your two uh, endeavors seem to be sales, and I'll add the civic engagement. And we, we started to talk about civic engagement grew out of sales, and we can talk about that. Yeah. Too. Okay. Well, no, that's the point there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the things that I find is in, in civic life, specifically mm -hmm. among elected officials, they have to walk a, a really tight line between this sense of brokering the best mm -hmm. for all parties. Yep. And in fact, ironically, I don't think we, as a country, and, and certainly in this city, I've observed it. We don't always trust politicians who want to make a deal. Like there's this sense of having sold out your base, for example. We all hear that expression. Um, yeah, that's true. I don't. I mean, I'm I'm not enough of a student of the history of politics to be able to speak to how that is different from mm. the way the politics have been in the past. But I don't really have a good sense of what the reason is that that dynamic exists. Like the ideological puritanism of national politics certainly yeah but it's I'm, I'm the one of the compelling arguments that I've heard on that front is this idea that a lot of it is due to the physical like forced physical separation of Congress people and senators from different parties by well really in the, I've heard this most talked about in the house but basically this idea that back in the mid-90s Newt Gingrich when he was speaker of the house just upped the fundraising requirements and the just like burdens on individual Congress people to produce for their party, mm. to such an extent, they, people had less time to socialize. There were just fewer informal contacts between members of opposing parties socially around DC. And then you know, people had to spend a lot more time back out in their districts. So they were physically present in the same city together less often. And if you look at a lot of different ways in which people have grown apart in this country, people talk about you know the increasing divide between Republicans and Democrats and rural and urban and all these things and a lot of that is due to increased urbanization over the course of the last 30 years whatever the trend has been right which you know? yeah so nothing is without its downside well but the other broader point is physical proximity is so important in 
modern life and in how we conceptualize ourselves relative to other people. Right. And you're much less likely to want to compromise with someone that you don't see as being part of your in-group, right? If someone is the other, I think you're much less likely to have empathy for that person that allows you to say, just to bring it totally home, right? I think a lot of it has to do with just lack of physical proximity sure. to each other and, among both constituents and lawmakers. And, and, and it's funny because you take a, frankly, you take a bit of a top-down approach, at mm -hmm. least in, in hearing you say this, and, and I've always tend to take a bottom-up. I, I think Top-down, how so? Well, I think in many respects we've seen the enemy and the enemy is us. Mm -hmm. I will generally blame the populace before I blame the, pop, well, I think the politicians. Both. That's yeah. my point. Um, but what interesting, the I guess he's a philosopher and economist, really mm -hmm. somewhere in between Dan Ariely, who mm -hmm. who wrote the predictably irrational. Got um, it. His premise, one of his premises, was there's there's transactional relationships mm -hmm. and there's uh, I guess social was the word I think he used mm -hmm. social relationships. And I wonder, you know, when it comes to sales and trust mm -hmm. in sales and trust <laughs> as a, a car quote unquote car salesman in the in the you know, and everything that that can evoke, right, right. at its worst, there it's fundamentally a transactional relationship, right? I think I mean, that's, to me, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the, the transactional versus social. To me, life is sales, right? Like, we try to put this little sheen on it, and we try to pretend it's a bunch of different things, and, you know, we're not consciously thinking about this as we're going about our lives, but life fundamentally is about helping other people get what they want. Well, it's about getting what you want by helping other people get what they want. And that's, that's what right. sales is about. Oh, yeah. And that's I think, the definition of sales, and that's the definition of life. I think that sheen that you talk about is maybe crucial to success in life. And, and people want there to be two kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't love it when, um, you know, and I'll call myself out for this, I don't mm -hmm. love it when I'm in a social relationship and someone obsesses over money in either direction. Yeah. I, I don't care if I've paid for dinner, mm -hmm. and I don't care... To, to my own <laughs> discredit sometimes sure. if they pay for dinner, you know. Yeah. And, and so I'm certainly someone who subscribes to this, and I, I do think it's almost like mm -hmm. I'm landing on this now talking to you, but I think there's something in the, in the political, yeah. in the civic, where we want fundamentally more of a social, we, we want it to be treated like this greater good and not a transactional relationship. I'm not sure that's true, actually. I think that if most people had the kind of relationships that they ask for from politicians, I just think they're like, I don't think most people want the kind of social relationships they expect from politicians. I think people expect p politics to be much more transactional, mm. which is why they expect a harder line, right? To put that example, right, you wouldn't go to your friend and say, like just the example was putting the bill, right? Like you wouldn't ask to filibuster dinner over who's going to pay the bill. <laughs> That's... But we would expect Democrats to like our party to filibuster over a policy change we don't like. Right. We expect, I think that I, to me that's actually one of the problems is that we expect, we don't treat politicians as though they are human. And politicians first and foremost are human beings. Mm. I think when we lose sight of that fact, we lose sight of how the political system works. And I mean, I, we could really go down this path because I, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently is the negative impact of the increased drive towards efficiency that pervades every aspect of modern life. Right. You know, My like, job, certainly. I'm well, sure yours, yeah. No, I, that's why I like real estate, because nobody gives, I, mean, I know how much I can curse on this podcast. You, nobody you, cares what I'm doing. <laughs> you can curse all you want, buddy. <laughs> I'll start it. Fuck everyone. Yeah. Nobody gives a flying fuck what I'm doing, you know? Like right. that's, my job is to take care of my clients, full stop. Mm -hmm. That's it. And I naturally have gotten much better mm -hmm. at that and much more mm -hmm. efficient at it over time. But no one's up there squeezing me saying, okay, well, 
yeah, we're going to pay you the Take same. We need to do 50% more. And yeah. you, it's like, no, if my clients are happy and they love what's happening, they're getting great homes, they're having a relatively, most of my work is with first-time home buyers. Sure. And I pride myself in the fact that something like 80% of my clients get their first or second offer accepted. And of these 80 deals I've done, 70 of them are first, have been buyers, and most of them have been first time. Right. So like, that's what I do. Is I that, hope that first special? time home buyers get homes in the worst market they've ever had. Is that special, that buyer side of it, where it would seem to me that a, that a sale, that a, that a seller side is, is probably, well, you tell me, mm-hmm. but, it's, but my guess would be it'd be a little more lucrative. Oh, it's not um, about lucrative, it's about how easy is it. It's how people think about it. Mm. You know, I mean, I, and I don't want to go too far down the real estate kind of wormhole, but. The point that I'm making is more that my job is about taking care of my clients. That's all that matters. And I'm going to take care of my like any time in my entire career. I've just always been a, a very zealous about looking out for the people who are on my team. Like when I was a volunteer coordinator in my political days, I cared more about my volunteers than anybody. You know, if you're a VIP coming up or you're wanting some kind of special access, as long as it doesn't interfere with my volunteers, that's all I cared about. Gotcha. I think about my clients the same way. So that's what I appreciate about real estate is that no one is putting the screws on me. I don't really have a boss telling me, you've got to be doing this, you've got to be doing that. I can do what's best for my clients and not worry about anything else. You hear that, folks? Yeah. This, <laughs> you, know, you can edit this part out. I'm no, not, no, This no. is not meant to be an advertisement no, for no, real the, estate. But the, like, the, that's the, my point is that the, it's one of the reasons I like real estate because I'm not subject to this just like, you know, increasing value extraction from the American worker that's happening right, right now. Absolutely. And right. I'm very fortunate to be in that position because... I'm virtually everyone I know is that like the highest paid workers are in our, our economy, right? Like modern tech workers are experiencing this probably in a worse way than most people. That's uh, correct, yep. And if you look at them, just getting back to the idea of what's causing disconnection, one of the interesting things to me about the fact that I, because I have a lot of friends who are tech workers in Seattle, and one of the interesting things to me is that tech workers are spending so much time at work, but they don't have a lot of time to be able to go out and you know, participate in civic life and do these other things. And, you know, a lot of that is a personal agency, too. But workloads have something to do with that. And sure. in the same sense that, you know, Congress people are going to have less time to, like, get drinks outside of the times when Congress is in session if they have to fundraise, you know, 70% of their time. The same thing applies to tech workers. So tech workers is an interesting topic. And just to kind of really bring it home, sure. you know, um, we live in a city in which actually a, a great number of tech workers come from uh, developing countries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, poor blue-collar environments right here in the United States, and engineering was a, kind of a way up. And yet, I think my, my uh, you'll never hear me advocating, I think the, the, the standard tech worker has plenty of uh, resources to advocate for themselves, right? Yeah, the standard high-paid tech uh, worker. Right. There are a lot of folks who work in tech who aren't, you know, making six-figure salaries. That's right. And, and that, just to further to my point, I think there's there's this false duality that exists mm-hmm. where it's a bunch of put-upon blue-collar satellites that are being driven out and there's some of that for sure. There's a lot of that I think, um, yeah. But yeah, I'd love to hear your, your take on it because um, the, re- the reason I bring it up is it, it strikes me as exactly one of these environments where because we are not putting ourselves in proximity, maybe because there's not an engagement level. I think it's more complex than that. I mean, the, the Seattle real estate market, people always look for the simplest narrative, right? Like that's what, as human beings, we kind of function on an in-group, out-group basis. Mm-hmm. So we think, okay, there's this thing happening. What's the easiest answer that puts the blame on someone who's not part of my group? That's how our brains function, essentially. And for Seattleites, I think there's a lot of that going on right now with blaming tech workers or blaming Chinese cash buy, like whatever right. the blanket. Right. There's yeah. a bunch of these kind of blanket categories that 
there's a grain of truth to. There's probably more like a larger amount of truth to the tech worker piece than there is to the foreign investment buyer piece for Seattle real estate anyway. But it obscures the fact that the, well, first of all, to your point about it not being the, what's happening to folks who are being pushed out right now. Seattle home prices since 2012, roughly 2012 sometime the market bottomed out, have increased almost 100% over the course of five years. And that's a massive amount of change. So I, I think that there's a real story there. There's a lot of truth to that piece of people who were able to easily afford Seattle five years ago no longer can. And that's mm. a very rapid change yeah. for a lot of people. Right. Because and to the kind of tech worker thing too, Washington State does a terrible job of training enough people for these tech jobs to be able to get them mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Like we right. just most of the tech workers who are coming here are coming from out of state, right? Out of the city, all these things. Mm -hmm. But um, that is often said in response to critiques from citizens, from longtime residents, who uh, are feeling exactly like you're saying, feeling mm -hmm. put upon or feeling alienated, and. The rhetoric rings hollow, in my opinion, because the jobs are coming from somewhere else. So it's not as though um, the people here should be grateful that someone else got that great job. That's true. And it's complex, right? Because the point I was making was that the median incomes, like if you look at Seattle's median income, mm. it's been keeping pace pretty well with rising home values. Home values are starting to pull away a little bit now, but the, the reason behind that increase has been largely people moving in from out of state. But they're also, I mean... I can't count on two hands the number of friends I have who eventually just kind of gave into the rising tide of Amazon from all different industries, mm -hmm. right? Tech folks, nonprofit folks, writers. What do you mean by rising, rising tide? The rising tide of just like how hungry Amazon is for good people. Mm. Oh. And it'll get them from wherever they can. They've come from city government, from like just, I mean, every <laughs> sector in which I know people who work, I know people who have gone to work for Amazon who lived in Seattle for significant amounts of time before they took the jobs. Sure. So like Amazon is pulling people in from a lot of different areas. And mm. if you're in that space, folks who are making six-figure salaries and have their like two-income, double-six-figure salary, fam they can afford to live in Seattle you know, just fine, as long as they're comfortable paying what they have to pay to live here. The problem, I think, is people who have lived here for a long time who are in industries where their pay isn't indexing with the median income, you know, with median with the rising home prices they're losing the ability to be able to rent or buy in the city. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a significant number of people. So yeah, I think that is a real thing. And how does that, you know, how is it going to shake out? What's the five-year, you know, outlook? Who knows? I mean, selling houses. yeah. The, I mean, for me personally, as a real estate agent, it doesn't matter to me for my business what the market does. I'm confident that I'm going to be able to make a good living regardless of what the market is doing at any given time. Mm -hmm. I also think the Great Recession is probably the worst Correction we're going to see in my lifetime probably I, who knows right? Uh, there are certain kind of black swan events that are specific to Seattle that could impact that if the earthquake hits us You know if Amazon goes bankrupt. Those are very big deals, right? Um, Do but, you put those at about equal probability of, of occurring uh, Yeah, well who knows but I think that at some point at some point there's gonna be some kind of a correction You're already starting to see it with rents now. You know, there's such this like speculative frenzy of building new apartment units because is it the, speculative, really? Absolutely. Well, it was speculative because no one knew when the, the boom was going to end for apartments. Mm. And now we're reaching a point where, and I'm like, I don't track the apartment market aside from what I read in the, in the paper. So the data that I get mostly comes from the Seattle Times real estate reporter. And I don't really trust him on real estate. He's not the best when it comes to actually understanding real estate data. So I take his apartment data with a little bit of a grain of salt. Sure. But the piece that was really jumped out to me was 
the vacancy rates for some of these brand new buildings that are opening in South Lake Union and downtown. And they're, you know, I, for the neighborhood, for brand new buildings in downtown right now have a vacancy rate of like two thirds or something insane, according to this article from a few weeks ago. Good morning. And I don't know the context behind it. You know, I don't know, like somebody wrote an article that looked at, you know, oh my God, there's only like half of the places that are for sale right now are over a million dollars. They wrote this in December. And it's like, of course, well, yeah, that's because this is the dead time of year. Expensive listings take more time to sell. So they've been around for six months. So like you can lie with statistics in a bunch of different ways. Sure. I actually looked up the numbers in that case because I was curious. Oh, how many listings in the past year actually were over a million dollars? And it was like 15%. Makes but it doesn't make a good story. So yeah. I don't know what the context is for the apartment numbers, but there are massive numbers of vacant apartments that are brand new that they're having trouble renting right now and they're having to drop the prices on. On the high the, end, right? On, on the high the, end, on absolutely. That top end, yeah. And so yeah. that's going to slow down that speculative boom of we can make money hand over fist by building this, this new apartment building, leasing it out halfway, selling it for a 30% profit to a foreign investor. Like that stuff was happening all the time. That's going to happen less and less now, I think. And if, I don't know, there's all sorts of different ways it could go. I mean, yeah, does the market clear? Uh, what I mean is... Uh, well, the rental market and the purchase market are very different, too. It would be great if some of those apartment buildings started turning into condo buildings instead, because right. what we are in desperate need of more condos for yeah. sale just across the city. And I'm like, you know, we don't have the ability to snap our fingers and build a bunch of, you know, new, like, townhome development is probably the best we're going to get on single family. And as controversial as townhomes are, I bought a townhome this past August, you know. I think it's a great form of infill development that doesn't change the character of neighborhoods too much, makes them much denser. I think townhomes are great. Yeah, I'm but, with you. <laughs> but we can't really do that at scale. Whereas, you know, condos, we can build hundreds, thousands of units of condos if people are interested in doing that instead of apartments. Right. Uh, and we need that because there are a lot of folks who can afford to buy those new construction condos who are now competing for much less expensive stock on the market and taking those and preventing other people from getting it. And they're them. less interested in the apartment anyway, right? That, that particular buyer. Well, they're generally different populations. Uh, buyers who, or renters who turn into buyers, usually either are going through a life transition and getting married, having kids, something like that, or they've got a sweetheart deal on rent that goes away. So they've been paying $1,000 a month under market. Now they're being bumped up to market rent and they realize they might as well buy if they've got the down payment. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I mean, this is great. So it, this is more that I've heard mm -hmm. about the real estate uh, market here in Seattle in a really long time. <laughs> I could talk to you for four hours about the real estate market in Seattle. <laughs> if, if you can wave a magic wand, yeah. right? What that happens, was a good question. What happens over two years? Like in the, just, the, just the next two years, what... what I mean, my, my buyers who bought in the last couple of years might not want me to say this, but I think the best case scenario for me is that instead of 15% per year, we get 5% per year growth. Mm -hmm. I think 5% a year is much more sustainable over the medium term than 15% per year. 15%, it's... I mean, if you're planning on selling your place and moving out of state, it's great. For everyone else, it's not actually a very good setup. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for, for coming and yeah. being part of the process here. Um, I, you, you know you were my first guest. That's great. Yeah, happy to help you kick it <laughs> off. <laughs> I think you were the first people I met when I came to Seattle. So <laughs> oh, really? It's very, okay, yeah, it's good. very, very poetical. So, you know, we end, we end all the shows with our uh, segment, um, if you care about blank, you should blank. Oh, I should have thought more about that, huh? Yeah, well, one, one should <laughs> think about that. <laughs> if you care about blank, you should blank. Okay, well, if you care about what's happening in Seattle right now, you should read more local news. Oh, no, I, I've got an even better one. We can do that. Yeah. <laughs> if you care about what's happening in Seattle, you should vote in local elections. Awesome. Dolby Royale, thank you so much. Always for a pleasure. Yeah. Good to see you.
This has been UpZones. Today's featured sponsor was Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Mention UpZones at the register for a 10% discount. Thanks to our first ever guest, Sol Villarreal. Be sure to subscribe to Sol's Civic Minute newsletter. All music by the Subcons. Opening poem segment courtesy of Anthony McPherson. Thanks to Abigail Wharton, Dave DeLuca, Kamira James, and Rod West for reminding us that things are changing. I'm your host, Ian Martinez. This has been a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week.